In the chronological gospels, the life and 70 week ministry of the Messiah, the four gospel portraits are superimposed one over the other by precisely synchronizing them with the one miracle recorded by all four gospel authors, the feeding of the 5,000. This one common event, which occurred right here in the Galilee, allows us to lock all four gospel accounts into a singular moment in time that occurred in the middle of Yeshua's ministry, making it possible to chronologically align the events preceding and succeeding this propitious miracle. This is the greatest story never told. It's all about Yeshua, the prophet, the promised Messiah. Join me here in the land of Israel as we take a chronological and archeological journey through the Gospels. You have never seen anything like this before. I'm Michael Rood, prepare for a rude awakening. According to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter one and in verse 18, the birth of the Messiah transpired in the following manner. Miriam, the daughter of Yosef ben Yaakov, was espoused to Yosef ben Eli, but before they came together in marriage, it became obvious that she was with child. Yosef, her husband, was a righteous man. Yet he did not want to make a public example of her, so he was considering how to divorce her privately. But while he considered these things, the angel of Yehovah appeared to him in a dream. Yosef, son of David, do not fear to take Miriam as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will name him Yeshua for Yoshia, for he will save his people from their sins. When Miriam returned to Nitzaret, pregnant after a three-month visit to Judea, her spouse husband, Yosef, was in quite a quandary. Being a righteous man, the Torah required him to have her stoned so that evil might be removed from the house of Israel. But being a merciful man, Yosef wanted this heartbreak to just go away quietly and to get on with his life. While he struggled with his options, the angel Gavriel appeared to Yosef in a dream and told him that Miriam's child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He instructed Yosef to name the child, the same name that Gavriel had given to Miriam three months earlier. To confirm the angel's words, all Yosef had to do was to ask Miriam if the angel had given her a name for the child. He would not need to be struck deaf and dumb as Zachariah, nor would he need to make a cross-country journey as did Miriam. Though Miriam was only given the name Yeshua, Yosef was told why he was to be named Yeshua. The ancient Hebrew Matthew reads, Yeshua Yoshia. It is a common Hebrew figure of speech that makes sense only in Hebrew. Yeshua means salvation. Yoshia means he will save. Yeshua is the short form of the name Yehoshua, which in itself means Yehovah saves. 
every church historian of the first four centuries confessed Matthew wrote his gospel in the Hebrew language. The name and the reason for his name makes no sense in Aramaic, Greek, English, or any language other than Hebrew. The popularized name Jesus was never enunciated until English speakers began mispronouncing the letter J like a soft G as in giraffe. J was originally pronounced as a consonantal Y, as in yellow. There is no soft G or J sound in Hebrew or Greek. And calling him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins makes no sense. Even the name Jesus has no meaning. Yeshua means Yehovah saves. But Jesus is not a Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic name. The name Yeshua preserves the irrefutable evidence that the angel spoke and that Matthew wrote his gospel in Hebrew. Regardless of our religious upbringing, out of respect for the Messiah, we will call him by the name that the angel instructed both Miriam and Yosef to call him. Yeshua, because if we believe and call on his name, he will save his people from their iniquities. Verse 22, now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Yahweh to the prophet, Yeshua, Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is, God with us. The first question one might ask, how does this situation fulfill the promise of Isaiah? In Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz. Yehovah shall give you a sign. Behold, in Alma, a young maiden shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Verse 16, before the child is old enough to know right from wrong, both Samaria and Damascus shall lose their kings. After Isaiah delivered the prophecy to King Ahaz, he told us how the prophecy was fulfilled in his day. As many of Isaiah's prophecies, like the Feast of the Lord, have initial, intermediate, and final fulfillments. In Isaiah 8.3, we read, I went unto the prophetess, speaking of Isaiah's young wife, and she conceived and bare a son. Then Yehovah said to me, call his name Meher Shalal Hashvaz, meaning swift to the booty, speedy to the prey. Because before the child knows to cry, Abba, Ima, my father, my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria shall be taken away by the king of Assyria. Isaiah's prophecy was originally fulfilled when his wife, a young maiden, conceived and delivered their child. Isaiah was told by revelation to call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz, but he said the young maiden would call his name Emmanuel. Now the angelic instructions to Miriam and Yosef commanded them to call the child Yeshua, yet it asserted that this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's Emmanuel prophecy. So what do these names have in common with the fulfillment of prophecy? Isaiah named his son Meher Shalal Hashbaz, 
because he was a living reminder of the brevity of time until the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel and the Syrian kingdom would be laid waste. The child would not be old enough to know right from wrong or be able to cry father or mother before their destruction was accomplished. The meaning of his name and the very existence was indicative that Elohim was among them, Emmanuel. 600 years after Isaiah, Yosef named Miriam's child Yeshua because he would save his people from their iniquities. The meaning of his name and his very existence was indicative that Elohim was among them. Furthermore, a chaste virgin having a son as the fulfillment of Gabriel's prophecy was again proof that Elohim was among them, Emmanuel. Both prophecies were about a young maiden bearing a child and the father naming the child according to direct revelation from heaven. Emmanuel, Elohim, is among us. Neither Isaiah's nor Miriam's sons were literally named Emmanuel, but the fulfillment of the prophetic words of both Isaiah and Gabriel was proof that Elohim was among them. And the conception of a child, the son of God, by a virgin maiden is truly proof that Emmanuel, God is truly among us. Matthew chapter one, verse 24. Then Yosef, being awakened from his sleep, did as he was commanded by the angel of Yehovah. And he took Miriam as his wife. Yet he did not know her intimately until after she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called him Yeshua. The Tinkerbell floating star that led three wise men to the manger on the night of Yeshua's birth is an illusory literary invention whose only reality is in the opening of General Lou Wallace's novel, Ben-Hur. Michael Rood's Message of Truth is broadcast all over the world, but none of it happens without the monthly financial support of our Ambassador Club members. And right now, membership has more benefits than ever. I'm giving into a ministry that is helping to feed other people that have the same hunger that I do. Join now, and Michael Rood will send you the Ambassador Club Welcome Kit, an exclusive messenger bag stocked with teaching DVDs, Red Sea Crossing cards, and more. You'll also receive ambassador-only bonus gifts whenever you make a separate donation to receive the monthly love gift. Best of all, you'll get ambassador-only sale prices in our online bookstore several times throughout the year. Plus, exclusive invitations to Ambassador Club functions at a Rude Awakening events. All it takes is a modest commitment of $100 per month or an annual gift of $1,200. Call now or visit the Arude Awakening website to join the Ambassador Club. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days... This is the historical narrative phrase that occurs throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And it came to pass in those days. It is the polar opposite of the once upon a time of fairy tale folklore, yet most people treat the scriptures as if they were a fairy tale, and they ignore the historical and chronological information that can be cross-checked with both modern astronomy and ancient secular history. 
History is often rewritten or reinterpreted in an attempt to make the biblical record inaccurate, and pseudo-historians appear intelligent. The Tinkerbell floating star that led three wise men to the manger on the night of Yeshua's birth is an illusory literary invention whose only reality is in the opening of General Lew Wallace's novel, Ben-Hur. Yet millions of manger scenes around the globe depict this event that never happened. The traditions of your denomination, what your second grade Sunday school lesson or theological cemetery taught you, are neither of interest nor consequence in our search for truth. I prefer to leave off the narrative introduction, and it came to pass in those days, and get right to the historical and astronomical facts embedded into this real life story. Again, verse one, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all subjects of the empire must be registered. In the 25th year of the reign of Caesar Augustus, which occurred in the year three to two BCE, before the common error in Roman church chronology, all subjects of Rome were required to register their support for naming Caesar Augustus the father of the Roman Empire. After the enrollment was completed, on February 5th, 2 BCE, the Roman Senate signed into law the declaration that the divine emperor, Octavius Augustus, was patri patriae. The statue of Caesar Augustus, sculpted for this occasion, still stands in the streets of Rome today, one of the few statues of the empire that is still intact after 2,000 years. It is a monument to the veracity of Luke's chronology and testimony to the year in which Yeshua was born. This enrollment was conducted when Serenius was serving as an administrative official in Syria. Serenius actually served in Syria two times as a governor, an administrative official of Rome. The first time was in the year 3-2 BCE, when he was sent to oversee the regional registration. Verse three, to fulfill this obligation, everyone was required to register at their ancestral village. Because Yosef was of the house and lineage of David, he left the village of Netzeret in the Galilee and went up to Beit Lechem, the village of David in Judea, to register for the census. And he took his espoused wife Miriam, who was great with child. Far more significant than the Roman emperor's proclamations exaggerating his overinflated ego, the Almighty commanded all Israelite males to go up to the Feast of Yahovah three times a year. Yosef need not make a special trip to Bethlehem to register with Rome. He will be in Jerusalem three times that year for the feast. And Bethlehem is only five miles up the path. Yosef and Miriam, both being from the house of David, were intimately familiar with Micah's prophecy that the ruler of Israel would be born in their ancestral village of Beit Lechem. Micah 5.2, Bethlehem Ephrat, though you are little among the thousands of Judea, yet out of thee shall come forth he that shall be ruler in Israel. Yosef, knowledgeable of the dangers on the road and the risk of taking his pregnant wife on such a long and arduous journey, is not going to be afraid to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. He knows from 2,000 years of Israel's history 
the safest place on earth for he and his wife is in the will of Yehovah. Luke chapter two and in verse six. And it came to pass while they were there in Bethlehem, the time was fulfilled for her child to be delivered. And the Gospel of John tells us the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Do not fear, listen to me. I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be for all people. Today, in the village of David, our deliverer, the Messiah, is born. The lives of Israeli victims hang critically in the balance following events of terror, violence, and war. But there's another painful problem, men, women, and children living in poverty. And you can be there for them. Visit us online at thelydiaproject.com. You'll find personal stories from the people who need you and the information you need to make a difference in their lives. When you give to The Lydia Project, you enable us to send help. Emotional and spiritual encouragement are especially needed during these critical days of recovery. Your support enables our ground team in the land of Israel to function as Yehovah intended, providing for the wounded soldiers, widows, orphans, and the poor. Help Israel. Give to The Lydia Project. as an intermediate fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us when Yeshua was born in a tabernacle on the high Sabbath that commenced the Feast of Tabernacles. During the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot in Hebrew, all males from their 13th year and upward are required to build and live in temporary shelters, tabernacles, or Sukkot for a period of seven days. English Bibles render this temporary shelter as a manger, also spoken of in the book of Genesis. Jacob made temporary shelters for his flocks. Therefore, the name of the place was called Sukkot. That place could just as well be called mangers in English. In Luke chapter two, verse seven, because there was no room for them in the village inn, Miriam gave birth to her firstborn son in a sukkah. Passover was the most attended of the three pilgrim feasts. Josephus estimated that two million people came up to Passover during the second temple period. A million attending the Feast of Tabernacles would not be an exaggeration there could have easily been a 100,000 tabernacles built in the countryside surrounding Jerusalem. Every available inn in rentable apartment was filled to overflowing. Miriam, being pregnant, was not required to live in a sukkah during the feast, but every inn was filled. Miriam joined her husband in the sukkah he made in the sheepfolds of Beit Lechem. It was there, overlooking the Temple Mount that the Levites raised the lambs for the Passover sacrifice. It was there the Lamb of God was born in a sukkah on the first day, the high Sabbath of the Feast of Sukkot. Continuing with verse seven, Miriam wrapped Yeshua in swaddling cloths and laid him there. 
Soon after birth, a child of the king and potential heir to the throne was washed with salted water and bound in swaddling cloths with his limbs bound straight. The parents prayed over the child in a short ceremony, vowing to raise the child in an upright manner. The swaddling cloths were strips of the priest's garments that were no longer serviceable. They were also used for wicks in the temple menorah. Elisheva, the wife of the priest Zechariah, would certainly have cherished providing the swaddling cloths for this momentous event. Verse eight, in the area there were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The angel of Yehovah approached them, and the glory of Yehovah shone round about them, and the shepherds became extremely fearful. Do not fear, listen to me. I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be for all people. Today, in the village of David, our deliverer, the Messiah, is born. This shall be a sign to you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a sukkah. If the shepherds are going to see this sign, they are going to need to move very quickly. The salting and swaddling ceremony is relatively short. For this to be performed in a sukkah during the Feast of Sukkot is indeed a singular event in Israel's history. Verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising the Almighty. Glory to Yehovah in heaven and on earth, shalom and divine favor upon men. After the angels departed into heaven, the shepherds said, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which the Almighty has made known to us. So they immediately departed and found Miriam and Yosef with the babe who lay wrapped in swaddling cloths in a sukkah. The shepherds found the brathos, the newborn Messiah, at the moment he was wrapped in the swaddling cloths and lying in a sukkah near the temple sheepfolds of Bethlehem. The astronomers from the east will arrive one year, two months, and six days after the birth of Yeshua, and they will find the young child, the Pedion, in the house where the family is then residing. Verse 17, after the shepherds witnessed this sign, they heralded abroad all those things which were told them concerning the child. All that heard their report marveled at the things which were told to them by the shepherds, but Miriam, pondered deeply all these things in her heart. The shepherds returned from the sukkah, glorifying and praising Yahweh for all the things that they had heard and seen. And it was just as it had been told to them by the angels. The Brit Milah of Yeshua, his circumcision and naming occur on the eighth day, the high Sabbath called Hashanah Rabbah, the last great day. He indeed was circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses would not be broken, just as he intimated to the Pharisees 30 years later. Luke 2, verse 21, when eight days were fulfilled, they circumcised the child and named him Yeshua, just as he was named by the angel before he was conceived. Matthew tells us that it was his stepfather, Yosef, who named him Yeshua. And that is why we call Jesus by his real name, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. 